Today we begin a significant journey in the Gospel of Luke. Luke reveals his purpose statement in the very opening lines of his Gospel track. He says, it seemed good to me to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke originally wrote his gospel to a patron named Theophilus. He tells us the purpose when he says, I want you to know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke wrote, so that we could know with certainty the identity of Jesus. Luke wrote, so that we could know with certainty that the tomb is empty. Jesus was recorded in the gospel of Luke so that we may know who he is and why he came. That word certainty can also be translated assurance. So this gospel is written to give us blessed assurance. Blessed assurance in the stories that are true. Blessed assurance in the teaching that is accurate. Blessed assurance in the miracles that are factual. Blessed assurance in the fact that the baby in the barn is the Christ on the cross. Blessed assurance that the tomb is empty and that Jesus will come back one day. Blessed assurance that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. These things are written so that you can have certainty about the things you've been taught. You know, we live in a world that is swirling with uncertainty. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know who's going to win the football playoff, even though some of you have a sneaking suspicion you just might know. We don't know who the next president of the United States of America will be. We don't know what's going to happen on the political scene. We don't know what's going to happen internationally. There are many things in this world we simply don't know. Yet Luke writes his gospel so we can know with blessed assurance, so we can know with absolute certainty that Jesus really is the long-awaited Christ. So Luke begins his gospel not with the birth of Jesus, he begins his gospel with the birth of John the Baptist. Luke does a masterful job in chapters 1 and 2 of intertwining the birth announcement of Jesus with the birth announcement of John, with the actual birth of John, with the actual birth of Jesus. It's as if Luke is saying, now, the arrival of John the Baptist is mighty, but the arrival of Jesus is miraculous. It's as if he puts them juxtaposed one beside the other to show us that the arrival of the John uh, the baptizer is great, but the arrival of Jesus is even more better because Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. So Luke says, I want you to know with certainty the things that you've been taught. So this morning, we begin a significant journey of faith. We begin a significant journey that bolsters our faith in the long-awaited Christ. We begin a journey that removes the doubts that may swirl around Christianity. We begin a significant journey through the Gospel of Luke today. And so this morning, I want us to focus our attention on the arrival of that one named John the Baptist. So if you have your Bible, please take it and turn to Luke chapter 1. We will begin in verse 67 
we will conclude by reading verse 79. So if you please turn there and stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 1, let's begin at verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come, and he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of the enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. As time dawned on the days of the first century, people wondered if God could be trusted. That may sound like a harsh indictment to you, but let it be known that in the days of antiquity, it seemed as if God was silent. Somehow, he had self-imposed a divine gag order. For 400 years had come and gone, since the last prophet of the Lord spoke, saying, Thus saith the Lord. 400 years since Malachi. 400 years. Four centuries had come and gone. And no one standing up in might and power like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. No mighty prophet of God to stand up and tell the people of God what the God of the people has in store for them. There had been no mighty voice for 400 years. Spiritual lives of the people of the ancient world was on spiritual life support. Their spirituality was as dry as sawdust. They wondered, is God ever going to speak again? Is God ever going to move again? Is God ever going to do anything mighty, unexplainable? Is God ever going to show up and show off? Is God ever going to move again? Is he ever going to move in our life as a nation? Is he ever going to move in our life as individuals? Is he ever going to speak again? For 400 years, there was divine silence. People went through the motions of religion and worship and going to temple. They, they went through the motions of doing the things they were supposed to do. And they had a somewhat of a hopeful anticipation waiting for the long-awaited Messiah. But there was no prophet to say, thus saith the Lord. There was, there was no one to come and to tell them what to do or how to live. They, they wondered if God would ever speak again. And some of them even questioned whether the Christ 
would ever come. Maybe you know how they feel. Maybe there's been a time in your life when your spiritual life was on life support. Maybe that time is not in the past. Maybe it's in the present. Maybe it's what you're feeling right now. Maybe some of you come in and you're questioning uh, whether God really is good and whether God can really help and whether God is even paying attention. You go through the motions of going to church, but you wonder if God is ever going to move in a mighty way, a way that you can't explain, a way that you can't fathom. And maybe some of you can identify with being spiritually jagged, being spiritually on edge, wondering if the God who made so many promises of old can make good on those promises. This is the context in which Luke opens his gospel. It's in a time period where God is silent. There is no prophet of the Lord. There is great, great question as to whether the Messiah is really going to come or is that just wishful thinking. One of the first individuals we meet in Luke's gospel is a man named Zechariah. He is a priest. He's a preacher. Zechariah is one of 18,000 priests in the first century. To say that the people of God were on spiritual life support did not mean they didn't go to church. Oh, no, they still went through all of the rituals and all the things and all the trappings of what spiritual people are supposed to do. In fact, the the temple employed some 18,000 priests, divided them in 24 divisions. Zechariah was one of those 18,000 priests. And and in a given calendar year, there was always uh, twice one week experiences where those divisions would go and serve the people of God there at the temple of God. This is the context that Luke begins his gospel. He tells us that Zechariah is a priest. He's also married to a lovely lady named Elizabeth. They have just about everything life could offer. They have a good marriage. They have a nice home. Zechariah has a good job. But there's one thing that eludes them. They really want a child, and Elizabeth is barren. We are told that Zechariah and Elizabeth are blameless and upright. What that means is that they are the best that Judaism has to offer. They represent the best and brightest. They are blameless and upright. Blameless in their morality. They are upright, not perfect, but they're upright in the sense that they know what they ought to do in order to keep the rules and regulations of God. They are blameless and upright. They are the best that Judaism has to offer. And Zechariah is ministering in the temple. It came time for his division to go to Jerusalem. And he went, and he one day was given the task to go into the temple and burn incense. That may not sound like a big deal to you. I mean, it's not like he was asked to hold a revival. It's not like he was asked to preach to thousands. It's not like he was asked to go make a special hospital visit. It's not like he was asked to try to help a marriage that was on the outs. It's not like he was supposed to give wise counsel. He was just supposed to go in and burn incense. You may not think that's a very big deal, but in the days of the first century, this was a mighty task because on certain times of the day, the people of God would come to the temple for prayer. And a designated priest would go into the temple and light incense and burn it unto the Lord. And the smoke that would rise up to the heavens was symbolic of the prayers that were lifted up in that holy place unto a very holy God. This was 
a big task, an important job, and Zechariah did not want to mess this up. He had been trained for such a moment like this. I can well imagine that in that morning when he woke up, he was a little anxious. The butterflies were tumbling a bit. He thought to himself, you know what? I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to make a mistake. So he began to refamiliarize himself with uh, the way the temple would be set up. He thought in his mind uh, where the position of the altar and the table and the lampstand and the basin of water. He knew exactly where he was supposed to go to burn the incense. He had gone through it in his mind time after time after time. After all, that's what us preachers do. We just kind of rehearse and rehearse and rehearse until we get to the point where we actually do the task. Now Zechariah is excited. I mean, it's time. It is. It's time for the show. I mean, he's ready to go. And there he goes up to the temple. He goes in. The crowd of people are gathered around. They're offering up prayers unto the Lord. And Zechariah walks in. And he knows where he's supposed to go. And he knows what he's supposed to do. And he knows how to burn the incense. And all of a sudden, he goes up. And he looks up. And there to the right side of the altar, there is an angel staring at him. That's not supposed to be there. That's not in the textbooks. I mean, he read all the parchments. He read the textbooks. He knew how it was supposed to go. He walked in, looked up, saw the angel, and took a step back. And the angel said, do not be afraid. Easy for him to say, right? Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for the Lord has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name John. And then the angel gives a preconception ultrasound. He gives him a picture of what that baby named John is going to be. The angel says that this one named John will be a joy and a delight. He'll be great in the sight of many. He will go before the Lord in the, in the power of Elijah to make ready a people for the coming Messiah. Whoa, this is an amazing proclamation. This is a mighty message. I mean, this is an angel of God from the throne of God who came to give a personal message to Zechariah about his own individual life. Not something just to go out and, and uh, tell for, for the entire nation of God, but this was personal. This was something for Zechariah and Elizabeth. How do you think you would respond? I mean, today, let's just imagine that the right side of the sanctuary you looked up and there was an angel and he called you by name and he gave you a specific task. What would you do? How would you respond? I'll tell you what Zachariah did. He said, how can I be sure about this? You want him to respond in faith and belief and trust and say, Woo, wow, I've been waiting for you. I've been praying for this. I mean, this is the wow moment that I've been waiting for. Yet he responds, how can I be sure about this? As a reader, you think to yourself, what an idiot. How can you respond that way? But then just remember, remember his ministry context. He had become a jaded minister in the midst of other jaded individuals where they questioned everything that was good and holy. Remember, Luke tells us this story so that you can know with certainty, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the things that you've been taught and told. So Zechariah responds, how can I be sure about this? How can I really trust you? How can I really believe this? I mean, after all, you're telling me a tall tale because I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years, which is a very nice way for the husband to say, my wife is old. How can I be sure of this? 
And the angel takes great offense at this. The angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God and you don't believe me. Because of your lack of faith, you will not speak until this comes to pass. And from that very moment, God pushed the mute button on Zechariah. The preacher could not talk. Now that's pretty cruel. The preacher could not speak. He tried, but nothing was coming out. He tried to push air over his vocal cords, but there was nothing, not a zilch. Nothing was coming out. No sound whatsoever. The people outside the temple, they were beginning to get a little restless. After all, you know, church people know how long they're supposed to stay for the worship service. And when you go into overtime, people get restless. And that's what's happening because they know how long it's supposed to take for the preacher to go in there and burn incense and come back out and give a word of blessing, pretty similar to what you find in Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. I mean, they're, they're expecting that type of blessing to come out uh, once the priest comes out and he gives the blessing. But Zachariah is not coming out and they don't have a word of blessing and they're going to wait there until there's a word of blessing. But he's taking too long and they're getting a little uncomfortable. And they're getting kind of fidgety. And eventually, the door opens and out comes Zachariah. And they think to themselves, finally. I mean, what happened, big boy? Did you forget how to burn the incense? And they can tell by the look on his face that he has a dumbfounded preacher look, which is not that abnormal because there are a lot of times that preachers have a dumbfounded look on their face. Yet on this day, Zechariah has a look on his face, a look of shock, a look of horror, a look of disbelief. He knows he's supposed to give them a word of blessing, and he can't. And Luke says, the crowd begins to understand that he's seen an angel because he begins to make signs to them. Visualize this with me. Old Zechariah comes out, he can't speak, and he starts going like this. (laughs) And from the signs that are being made, they understand there's an angel in there. And somehow, some way, for some reason, the preacher can't talk. Huh, that's odd. The people gathered their things and they went back home. Zechariah gathered his things and he went back home. I wonder how long it took Elizabeth to figure out that Zechariah couldn't talk. I wonder how, how surprised she was. I wonder if she was pleasantly surprised. But for nine months, preacher couldn't say a word. He couldn't say good morning. He couldn't say pass the salt. He couldn't whisper into his wife's ear. He couldn't say hello to the friend on the street. He couldn't yell at that jerk that just cut him off on the expressway. He couldn't say a word. Nothing. Now, in the first century, Without all the smartphone devices and everything, what would you do if you couldn't talk? What would you do? There's no television. There's no computer. There's, what would you do if you lived in the first century and you could not talk? What would you do? I'll tell you what you do. You have a whole lot of time to think. You would think a lot. Zechariah thinks a lot. What does Zechariah think about? He thinks about the message that God gave to the angel Gabriel to give to him. You know, uh, what's amazing 
is, is that the preacher is quiet for nine months. That's miraculous, right? What's even more amazing is that his barren wife, Elizabeth, conceives. And there's a bouncing baby boy growing inside her womb. That's amazing. That's what they prayed for. That's what they asked for. And God answered that prayer. And, and as Elizabeth is beginning to show, and, and as, as the baby's beginning to grow, Zechariah is remembering the statement of Gabriel. This child is going to be great. A joy and a delight. Many will rejoice at his coming. He will go in the spirit and in power of Elijah. One of the great prophets of old. You remember the story of, of Elijah, don't you? I mean, Elijah was a mighty man. He was an awesome dude. He was a great prophet. He raised the widow's son at Zarephath. You remember that story? He goes to Zarephath. He stays at the home of the widow. And the widow's son, instead of getting better, he gets worse. He eventually dies. She takes him and gives him to the prophet Elijah. Elijah takes him to the upper room, spreads him out over the bed, lies over him, prays three times. And the Lord remembered and brought life to that boy. And that one who was dead became alive again. Elijah scooped him up, carried him back down the steps and said to the mother, behold, your son. And Zacharias thinking, my boy is going to go in the spirit and power of Elijah. You remember Elijah, don't you? He stood up on Mount Carmel and he single-handedly defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. They had a showdown at high noon, and there they were. Uh, they both built an altar unto the Lord. Elijah built his altar unto Yahweh, and the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah built their altar unto the false, deaf, mute gods and goddesses of their culture. And Elijah let them go first. Whoever answers by fire is the one true God. You go ahead, cry out to Baal. And they cried and they ranted and they raved. They danced. They cut themselves, hoping that the drawing of blood would draw the attention of their false gods and goddesses. Actually, uh, the text, in so many words, says that Elijah begins to taunt them. He talks trash to them. He says, uh, maybe your God is busy. That Hebrew phrase, being busy, means maybe he's going to the bathroom. I mean, this is really sanctimonious trash talking going on now. And you know, the, Baal can't answer. He's not a real God. And so there, there is no answer. Elijah just simply stands up and says, God be God. Show yourself strong and mighty. And fire fell from heaven. You know, the people of the first century were waiting for fire to fall from heaven. They were waiting for God's fire to fall once again. They were waiting for this. And this little baby boy growing in Elizabeth's womb, he was going to go in the power of Elijah, one who could enable fire to fall from the heavens. Oh, Elijah could preach. He had a horrible wardrobe, but he could preach. And Elijah never tasted death. He never tasted death. He was swept up into 
uh, the heavens in a, in a whirlwind, in a chariot. And, and now Zechariah is putting all this together and he's thinking, oh, God is about to do something. God is about to move. God is about to work. He's about to bring his Messiah and he's gonna use my boy. He's gonna use John. He's gonna use this little one to uh, bring about and usher in the kingdom of God. And John is gonna go before Jesus and he's gonna prepare the people for the way of the Messiah for nine months. Zechariah thought about this. I'm sure that Zachariah and Elizabeth got pretty good at texting. They couldn't talk. And repeatedly, Zachariah would say, um, the boy must be named John. The boy must be named John. The boy must be named John. Because Zechariah knew that was the tangible evidence of obedience. The angel said, you must name him John. He thought to himself, okay, I've got to do that to prove unto the Lord that as my baby is growing, so is my faith. And so I've got to prove unto him my obedience. So his name has to be John. Elizabeth said, that sounds great. Okay, that's, that's fine. It came time for her to deliver, and sure enough, out pops a bouncing baby boy. As is their custom on the eighth day, they return back to the temple to circumcise him and to name him. They get through the rite and ritual of circumcision, then they go for the naming. Some family and friends had gathered and traveled with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Elizabeth said, uh, we're going to name the boy John. The friends and families thought, you know, John's a good name, but it's so common. I mean, there's nobody in your family named John. Why don't you name him Zechariah? Call him Zach Jr., call him Z, whatever, but name him after his father. The old man has gone through enough over the last nine months. The least you can do is let the boy bear his name. Elizabeth said, no, no, it can't be. His name has to be John. So then they took a tablet and they went over to Zachariah. And they said, you know, we think it's a good idea if we just name the boy Zach Jr. What do you think? And he takes a tablet with a writing utensil and he writes the words, etches them out, his name is John. As soon as he wrote the name John, his lips were loosed. As soon as he wrote the name John, Zechariah, this mute preacher for nine months, was able to speak. Now, if you couldn't talk for about nine months or so, and finally you're able to talk, what would you say? What would you talk about? You wouldn't talk about the sale at Macy's. You wouldn't talk about your favorite football team. You probably would not even talk about how things are going at, at work. What would you talk about? How would you respond? You know, I, I think that probably some of us may use our first words to blast God out of frustration. Why in the world did you do this to me, Lord? Uh, the, the punishment didn't fit the crime. It was too extreme. I mean, I, mean, I, I was just, uh, didn't know how to be certain that this was going to happen. And then you pushed the mute button over my life for nine months. And so some of us would respond with blasting the Lord. Some of us would say, it's about time. It's about time for you to open my mouth. It's about time for you to do something in my life. It's about time for you to do this for me. Some of us respond with frustration. Others would respond with sheer arrogance. 
But that's not how Zechariah responds. The first word on his mouth is praise be to God. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Praise be to the Lord because he is good. Praise be to the Lord because he's true. Praise be to the Lord because he's accurate. Praise be to the Lord. And so what follows, what I read for you, is the song of the singing preacher, Zechariah. It's a song of praise. And in this song, he speaks about two reasons of why he can praise the Lord. These are same two reasons that you and I can praise the Lord. Let me get to them quickly. The first one is this. Zechariah says, I can praise the Lord because redemption is near. I can praise the Lord because redemption is near. Listen to what he says. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. He has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Zechariah speaks about this redemption in past tense, which is his way of saying it's as good as done. Now, he realizes that his son is not the Messiah. His son is the forerunner to the Messiah. He knows the Messiah will come on the heels of John. He understands that, but he knows with certainty that God will redeem. So he speaks of it in past tense. He being God has come. He has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. We can praise the Lord because redemption has come. The word redemption, we talked about last week. It means to purchase. It's a marketplace term. In its most honest sense, it describes how a person is bought off the slave blocks. That person is redeemed. And Jesus came to redeem us from the shackles and slavery of our own sinfulness. And the work of Jesus is so strong. It is so mighty. You can speak of it in past tense. He has redeemed us. He's redeemed us once and for all. The mighty Messiah has come to liberate us from sin, to liberate us from shackles, to liberate us from our past, present, and even our future. We are completely free. For if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And Zechariah says, I can rejoice. I can praise God's holy name because redemption is near. He speaks further about that redemption later on in this passage when he speaks in verse 76. Turning to John, his eight-day child, Father Zechariah says, and you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Where did he get that? He got that directly from the message from Gabriel. You will be great. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. The Messiah is coming, and he's going to bring about salvation. He is going to redeem us. He is going to liberate us. And that redemption of salvation is going to come through the forgiveness of sin. And all that's made possible because of the tender mercy of God. That word tender literally means inward. It is because of God's inward mercy. At the heart of who God is, he is merciful. 
He is a merciful, benevolent God. So this salvation starts with God. It ends with God. It's accomplished by God. It is this God who has sought you. It is this God who is alluring you. It is this God who's come to redeem you. It is this God who's come to liberate you. And the way that you are liberated is through the knowledge of salvation, through the forgiveness of your sins. And all of that is made possible because of who God is. He didn't save you because you're cute. He didn't save you because you're smart. He didn't save you because of what you could do for him. He saved you just because of his innards, just because of his inward mercy. He is gushing with mercy to display to you and to me. My friends, this understanding of God is not shared by any other world religion. There is no other religion that portrays God in this way. Every other world religion says that you must come to God, that you must please God, that you have to uh, appease the gods. But Christianity says it just opposite, that it is God who pursues you, that it is God who is seeking after you. Why? Not because of who you are, but because of who God is. And Zechariah begins to put all this together and he begins to praise the name of the Lord. Why? Because redemption has come. My friends, I want to tell you, even on your worst day, you can praise the Lord because redemption has come. I mean, when things are going well, when things are going horribly, when, when things are victorious, when things are a bust, you can praise the Lord because redemption has come. You praise the Lord because redemption has come. Secondly, Zechariah says that you and I can praise the Lord because our God can be trusted. You praise God because he can be trusted. Remember, why does Luke write this story? Why does he write his gospel? So that you can know with certainty the things that you've been taught. And Zechariah the preacher, he goes back to the scripture. He goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, when he says, beginning in verses 72 and 73, that God has shown mercy to our fathers. He has remembered his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Zechariah says, our God has remembered his promises all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Now, you and I have talked about Abraham for quite some time over the last several weeks. Zechariah goes back to the great oath, the promise that God gave to Abraham dating back into Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless the whole world through you, through you and your offspring. That word offspring is seed. It is singular. It's not that all the descendants will be a blessing unto the world. It is one specific descendant will be a blessing unto the world. It is the one seed. It is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this oath, this promise is given unto Abraham. It is repeated in Abraham's life. You, you remember that there on Mount Moriah, it is Abraham who takes his one and only son, Isaac. He goes up Mount Moriah, and there he is to sacrifice his son unto the Lord. And Isaac questions his father, saying, I see the knife and I see the fire, but where is the lamb? Our God will supply the lamb, Abraham says. And they go up 
Mount Moriah and there Isaac, who is old enough and big enough to whip his old man and outrace him down the hill, he voluntarily and willingly lays himself on the altar, allows his father to tie him there. And Abraham takes the dagger, raises it in the air. And before he thrusts it through the chest of his son, it's the angel who comes back and says, Abraham, Abraham, don't slay your son. For now I know you will not withhold anything from me, not even your one and only son, Isaac. And then it is the Lord who reiterates the promise your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham sacrifices the ram in place of his son Isaac. You think, I think that Zechariah understands there's a connection between Mount Moriah and Mount Calvary. If Zechariah doesn't understand it, I promise you the good Dr. Luke understands it. Luke understands there's a connection between Mount Moriah and Mount Calvary. On Mount Moriah, the promise is given. On Mount Calvary, the promise is fulfilled. On Mount Moriah, the son is spared. On Mount Calvary, the son is slaughtered. On Mount Moriah, the son lives only to die later. On Mount Calvary, the son dies only to live forever. There is a connection between Mount Moriah and Mount Calvary. What Mount Moriah promises, Mount Calvary fulfills. And God the Father said unto Abraham, stop, don't sacrifice your son. Yet he says unto himself, I will sacrifice my son for the sins of the world. And God, who knew no sin, became sin for us and God did not spare his own son but he gave himself up for us on Mount Calvary. Zechariah says God is about to do something good. It's about to get good in the house right now because God is about to do something spectacular. So Zechariah says praise the Lord because he can be trusted. Regardless of your circumstances or your situation, regardless of what you're going through, I want you to know this morning, your God can be trusted. Our God is a trustworthy God. The one who makes the promise makes good on the promise. And so regardless of what your life experience tells you, I want you to know that your trust in God is not wasted. You trust the Lord because he's trustworthy. So you trust him with your past, present, and future. You trust him with your family and your finances. You trust him with your marriage and your money. You trust him with your work and your walk. You trust him with every aspect of your living because he is Lord over all things. Your God is trustworthy. So at the end of the day, Zechariah says, I gotta praise the Lord. I've got to praise the Lord. Did you wake up this morning and say, you know what, I've got to praise the Lord today. I mean, I've got to. It's not an option. It's not a possibility. I've got to praise the Lord today. You say, but pastor, I'm not having a good day. I don't care. You've got to praise the Lord today. But pastor, I'm waiting on a prognosis. I know it. You better praise the Lord today. Oh, but pastor, I don't know what the future holds. I know, but you've got to praise the Lord today. I don't know how many of you woke up with an itch. I don't know how many woke up with an understanding. I've got to praise the Lord today. I've got to praise him because redemption is near. I've got to praise him because he is trustworthy. I've got to praise him because my God is good. I've got to praise him because my God is lovely. I've got to praise him because he's got my, my back. I've got to praise him because God supplies all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I've got to praise him because he will forgive me of my sins if I merely confess my sins before him. He is faithful and just to forgive me of all unrighteousness. I've got to praise him this morning. I may be the only one in the house today, but I've got to praise the Lord. I've got to stand up and say, Lord, regardless of what the day holds, I know you 
hold my day. And regardless of what I'm going to experience, I know that you are in charge of it all. So Lord, regardless of my failures, regardless of my, of my frailty, I praise you this day because you are a praiseworthy God. So today we begin a significant journey of our faith. And from the outset, let it be known that in every moment of every day, you've got to praise the Lord. You've been redeemed. You've got to praise the Lord. I know things may not always go your way. That's all right. You've got to praise the Lord. Zacharias lets us know from the very outset, our God can be trusted. Our God is the author of redemption. Our God is worthy of praise. So this morning, we've got to praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And we give you this invitation. And Lord, some of us stumble in the sanctuary today. And we acknowledge before you our sinfulness. We acknowledge that you are good to us in spite of ourselves. And we praise your holy name. Some of us walk in and we are on cloud nine because things are going great. And in that moment, we have to praise you too. Every morning, every night, we praise your holy name. Maybe there's somebody here who does not know you as Savior. Maybe they don't have blessed assurance. Maybe they don't know with certainty the things that they have been taught and told. Oh, Lord, today I pray that you will remove the blindness of their eyes, help them to see through the eyes of faith, and respond in obedience to your great redemption. Lord Jesus, there may be some of us that are praying for family members. We know the altar's open. Lord, as you speak to us, may we respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.